thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. And as always, we we look forward to Friday, especially this this part of the show, because we get Chris Smith, the naked scientist, to answer all those questions that you've ever had about life in general. Trying to see if we can get a scientific answer to some of those particular questions. So, Dr. Chris Smith, a very good morning to you, sir. Oh, a really good morning to you as well. As we always do, you can shoot and ask Dr. Chris Smith all the questions that you have. And we'll go to the first one, Chris. Uh, It's almost summer year. And one thing I hear once in a while are that uh, are the older folk telling children not to swim after eating or else they'll cramp up and possibly drown. Now, uh, is this just an old wife's tale? There's a kernel of truth in this, because when we eat, ah. you're putting a very big metabolic demand on your stomach, because in order to digest your dinner, then you have to put a, a lot of blood and other resources into your abdomen, because you've got muscle activity and peristalsis, you secrete gastric and other digestive intestinal juices, pancreatic juice, etc. This requires enormous diversion of blood and resources into the abdominal organs. Your liver becomes much more active to start processing all the calories and all of the other things that have come in from your food as well, for example. So therefore, there's potentially a bit less blood to supply your muscles with because normally when we become active, our body is very good at diverting blood supply to where we need it. And when you're swimming or doing any kind of exercise, you augment the blood flow to your muscles. The idea being that then you've got more blood bringing in sugars and oxygen to supply the muscles and also cart off the waste products and the muscle activity. Now, if you've got a very full stomach, not only is that potentially an impediment to swimming, but also you've diverted resources away from the muscles you're going to need for active movement. So there is a chance that some muscles could become robbed of sufficient resources in order to keep them operating optimally and they're more likely to fatigue more quickly and therefore you're more likely to succumb to things like muscle fatigue and cramp and obviously if you're relying on your muscles to keep you going if you're out swimming in the middle of nowhere that could be a bad thing so it it is probably sensible to say to people let your dinner go down before you go racing around and going in the swimming pool or in the sea because there is a chance that that could happen. Okay, excellent answer. Uh, Tracy in Stellenbosch is next. A very good morning to you. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Tracy. (laughs) Um, Quick question. Hi. What I wanted to know was, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or not, but when when older people who've had operations um, feel the cold or, or it's going to rain, they very often say they can feel in their joints or if they've had an operation. In fact, your, not your producer, um, Kino, the lady that answered the phone, she yeah. said she's got pins in her knees and she knows when it's going to rain because it's quite sore. Oh. Oh. So I'd like to understand, is there, is, you know, is there really any truth in it or um, how does it work? How but does the body work? She's got pins in her knees because every time she walks in, she sees Bruce Hong. But okay, um, <laughs> let, let's get Chris to answer the question. Great. Well, I think probably there's an element of the placebo effect in this. There's also what we call uh, confirmation bias or affirmation bias, where if you 
on on the one day that your knees ached, it also rained. You then put two and two together and say, ah, oh, well, look, every time you know I have this uh, particular symptom, it rains. Therefore, one must be re- related to the other. And so we we tend to see the information and see the relationships we want to see. For want of a better phrase, we attach significance to coincidence. So there's probably an element of this. There's also probably an element of truth to this in the sense that when you get certain extreme weather conditions, very cold weather, for example, there's probably going to be some kind of prelude, some change in the weather, which is it's not going to suddenly happen. So as a result, it's it's going to come in, the temperature's going to drop, you're probably also going to change your lifestyle a bit, you're probably going to feel a bit less uh, happy because of this, and this might mean you're more likely to notice negative symptoms such as pains and aches and pains and things. When the sun's shining, you're feeling happy, and you're doing things that keep you keep you busy you don't notice those things so much and therefore you you don't tend to complain of them perfect and james in pinelands good morning james good morning very important question i have for you uh-huh why is it when you have an open bottle of beer and you tap it on a counter or an annoying friend comes and taps it on its on its neck that the beer then foams and everybody giggles <laughs> <laughs> Just like I did, yeah. Hi, James. The answer to this is beer is fizzy because when they make beer, it's a fermentation process. You use yeast. Yeast makes alcohol, but the other byproduct of the fermentation is carbon dioxide. Because the beer is, during the main part of the fermentation, sealed, the carbon dioxide has to go into solution. It can't escape because of the pressure. And when it goes into solution and dissolves, it basically raises the pressure of the gas in the liquid. And that's why it's fizzy, because when you pop the cap on the beer, you're reducing the pressure above the liquid, and this then encourages the dissolved CO2 to start coming out of solution. But when you tap the top of the bottle, what you're doing is creating a shock wave, which is in the liquid, and it probably creates lots of little bubbles by driving some bubbles from the top into solution by basically uh, also bringing the beer into contact with rough points on the surface of the bottle, and these offer nucleation sites. Nucleation sites are points where other bubbles find it much easier to form. So you produce an enormous number of CO2 bubbles very fast underneath all of the liquid. And because a gas takes up between 500 and 1,000 times more space than the equivalent liquid does, then there's obviously not enough room in the bottle for all of this gas to fit in. And because it's happening under the liquid, it quickly pushes a lot of the liquid above it out of the neck of the bottle. And the bottle being a narrow neck, you get an acceleration. So as the liquid comes up the bottle, it then accelerates out of the neck because it's all got to fit into a smaller cross-sectional area. So it then spurts out the top and you get that nice fountain of beer, which uh, obviously everyone laughs at, but it spoils your beer. Ah, there you go. Well, moving on to another one here. If the wings of an aircraft relies on the movement of the air over and under the wings to give it the lift and the engines require oxygen, why do they actually fly at such high altitudes where the air is much thinner? And how do they determine the optimum altitude to maximize the fuel efficiency? Good question. Yeah, excellent question. The answer to this one is, yes, the passage of air over the wings, both being pushed down by the underside of the wing and pulled down onto the top surface of the wing is what generates lift. But the other thing you've got to think about is the reason you need engines pushing your aeroplane along is because the aeroplane is pushing an aeroplane-sized piece of air out of the way as it moves along. So there's a lot of friction. So therefore there is a compromise between 
flying along and having lots of lift and flying higher having a bit less lift but a, a lot less friction and so where the aircraft fly will be at an altitude where you can run your engines efficiently and you can tune the mixture that's being injected into the engines because you if you've got slightly less oxygen coming in you can put a bit less fuel in and so you run the engines at the right mixture for the ambient air coming through and as you're fighting less air because the air is less dense at altitude, you're doing less work. So actually it's much more fuel efficient to do that and it doesn't therefore matter that the air's a bit thinner because actually you're not having to do as much work to drive your plane forwards. The way they do this is the aircraft knows, because it's got clever computer models now, exactly how much fuel it's burning at any one time and it can therefore calculate what the optimum journey path will be because you also have to take into account lifting something from ground level to an altitude takes a lot of energy and if you've got a full tank of fuel on your aeroplane you can have hundreds of tons of fuel on there to go straight up to a very high altitude might not be the most optimal thing to do so some some aircraft or some carriers might fly at a certain altitude for a certain distance and then when they've burned off a certain amount of fuel they'll climb higher and they're also taking advantage of other ambient conditions the jet stream and so on which weather radar and so on can tell them about and all of this is integrated to mean that they minimize their fuel burn because the thing that really kills an airline apart from corruption and other problems like that is that uh, it's the fuel burn fuel costs are huge and so if you can minimize how much mass you you carry how much mass you get off the ground and how fast you burn the fuel off this strongly hits your bottom line and so that's all being calculated very very carefully by these carriers i tell you what chris judge just judging from that answer you need to come and work at saa really need you (laughs) paul in durbanville hi paul good morning Hi, morning, 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 Chris. Morning. Um, okay, at a, certain, at a certain time of the year, my swimming pool, a strange phenomenon happens in my pool. Basically, if I take the cover off towards the end of winter, leave it overnight, the next morning, there's a layer of debris and leaves and things on top. Then, 300 millimeters below the surface, there's another layer, absolutely flat, with debris on it. And between those two layers, it's absolutely clear. It's almost like it's got two surfaces. Okay, great. Chris? Uh, Paul, was the pump running at the time? Did you have the pool pump and filter running? No, or had you the absolutely. Water? Yeah, that's the critical detail. Stagnant. Because when you start the pump rolling, that's actually designed in order to, to keep the water turning over and to, to pull water from the bottom and shove it back in higher up. If the, wa- if the pump's not running, then the water is largely being determined in terms of where it sits in the pool by its density the density of the water will be proportional to what's dissolved in the water and that shouldn't really change very much but the temperature is a huge driver so what i suspect is happening here is that the water when it was completely covered up was pretty much a uniform temperature from bottom to top it will be a bit warmer at the top because it's closer to the air and the sun but as soon as you take the cover off that top layer of water is going to warm up and is going to sit there and 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 is going to turn over because there's going to be convection currents and then deeper down there's going to be a much deeper colder layer which hardly turns over at all and you get that boundary between the two and it's a thermocline and we see this in the ocean all the time and uh, you see it in the atmosphere because air's a fluid as well so we see these boundary layers occurring when you when you get fluids at different densities that uh, create effectively a barrier and the mixing all occurs in the layer above and there can be a really stable cold layer deep down thank you very much for that question paul and thanks chris for the answer another question here uh, why is it that some toddlers have blonde hair when young and it changes to brown like a mousy brown hair color when they get older yet other toddlers remain the same brown hair color 
from a young age with no change when they get older. What were you one of those, Kino? I never had hair. <laughs> well, I know you haven't now, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I, my hair was black all the way through. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I don't I, know what it's doing at the moment. <laughs> I was one of them. Uh, I I had very very blonde hair until I was in my early twenties, actually, and then it went a bit darker. But um, some people are blonde and stay blonde. Some some are natural blackheads, as it were. <laughs> they start life dark and then they stay dark and then they go grey. And the colour of hair is all down to the chemical melanin, the same stuff that makes our skin have the colour that it does. Around the hair follicle are stem cells which make the hairs and sitting under those and around those are melanocytes, the cells that make melanin. And they follow a genetic recipe that tells them how to make the melanin and there are different flavours of melanin. There's eumelanin, which is a very black, dark colour, and pheomelanin, which is a yellowy colour. And the relative proportions of those two set the hair colour. But because this synthetic pathway is under genetic control, as a hair follicle matures, and as your cells in your body mature and gear up and, and get older then the genetic program can switch a bit. And this is true in many tissues. For example, enzymes that break down things tend to turn on at certain ages of development and so on. And this is pretty similar. So I suspect that what's going on when a child's hair changes colour in this way is that they're slowly assimilating and turning on the genetic programs that are going to make the final adult cocktail of melanin that they're going to need in their hair. And it probably has an evolutionary uh, origin to this because... When you're little, if you're not needing those chemicals, and it costs the body energy to make dark melanin, if you don't need it, then what's the point of turning it on at birth? Because you're just wasting energy that you could be diverting into growing. So therefore, using these pigments later, when you've got a bit more energy to spare, and you're not potentially robbing Peter to pay Paul just to put colour into hair you don't need, then you can afford to do that. And it might be that there's an element of this to it. And something which is related to that is another question. Why is it that with mixed-race parents, one white mother, blonde, father, um, obviously black, with curly hair, do you sometimes have children that come out white and others who come out quite mixed within the same family? Yeah, and there have been many cases of this. And in fact, my, my daughter, her best friends at school, um, I think dad is Jordanian and mum's white English. And one of the children is much darker than the other. But they're, they're actually twins. Not identical twins, obviously. Ah. But they, they, are, they were born from the same conception event. So... It, it just goes to show this is nature's hand. When we sort out genes, the way in which you actually put genes into eggs and sperm is that when you're making an egg or making a sperm, you take the full set of chromosomes in an adult and you halve them and you halve them randomly. So you have two copies of chromosome number one, let's say, one that you got from your dad and one you got from your mum, and all of the genes which are on chromosome one are in the same positions on both of those chromosomes, but they're not necessarily identical genes. There are slightly different genetic spellings for those genes. And when you make an egg or a sperm, the egg and sperm cells randomly select, I'll have that number one chromosome i'll have that number two chromosome so you get a mixture of chromosomes from mum or dad in the sperm and this is nature mixing up the genes and then when you fertilize the egg you obviously get a copy of each chromosome from the sperm and a copy of each corresponding chromosome in the egg they come together and then you get two pairs again but that the the order of the genes that are on those chromosomes are the same but the, the recipes for these things are completely different. And so you'll end up with a range of factors where some of the genes that are involved in skin colour and hair colour or facial structure and so on, 
those are going to differ and the, the the different selections are going to be made each time you might you might borrow the mum's copy of the chromosome when you make one egg the dad's when you make the other one and that huge range of diversity makes us all different and it's a huge strength because by endowing people with this broad genetic diversity it makes us much more yeah. resilient in evolutionary terms because you've got many more hands to play in the in the great game of of nature which gives you the opportunity to defeat things that that uh, try to overwhelm you because yeah. nature's all about a uh, it's it's a race for survival Cape talk whatsapp 0725671567 chris smith the naked scientist with you all the way through until 10, so we've got about two and a half minutes, but uh, we've got a question. Let's hear it. Morning, Gino. Um, why is it that when I eat certain foods, um, I end up having back pain after eating those foods? Um, it doesn't, uh, there's no particular time of the day it happens, um, but it does happen quite often. Um, I have had pancreatitis and I don't know if that could be the cause of it and what would be the solution to that problem? I would imagine also, I mean, if you're eating a banana and you're in a tree, um, you might have that. But anyway, I'm not the naked scientist. Uh, Chris? Yeah, this is a tricky one, and one's always cautious about doing on-air diagnoses. But uh, as the person points out, um, he has had pancreatitis in the past. And classically, when you have pain from the pancreas, it does go through to the back. The pancreas also is provoked into into releasing digestive juices when you eat. So it could be that. It could be that this person... As he says, there's a relationship between eating and then getting the pain. The other thing that becomes active when you eat is your gallbladder. The gallbladder stores bile, which is used to dissolve, sorry, which is used to absorb fats from yep. uh, what we eat. And sometimes if you've got gall stones, then a gall stone, which is an aggregation of bile salts that forms literally a pebble in your gallbladder, it can lodge in the neck of the uh, gallbladder and block the gallbladder outflow and this can lead to pain, and it, it can also go down the duct, and the cause of his pancreatitis might have been a gallstone. That's a common cause. So it might be that there's a stone somewhere. I think if this is happening, it's happening regularly, and it's always provoked by eating. It does argue that there is something there that needs to be investigated, and I would urge that person to, to go and get sorted out and go and have someone have a look just to make sure that nothing's being missed. Well, there we go. Chris, and that leaves us quite neatly at the end of our half an hour. As always, a pleasure chatting to you, and I look forward to next week. Until the next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.